one thing that we get to do that no other creature on the planet can do is that we get to add value by creating things. And I went from $40 million in revenue to watching everything that I had built for God get sold. You've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ and not in having money. I sold my company and I really had a hard time getting out of bed. Maybe been a long year, maybe been a hard life, maybe you're not alright. Faith-driven entrepreneurs to do what they want to do have to understand what God has given them. There's winners and learners, not winners and losers. I feel like I was chosen to be on this show for a reason and I had to do something. Like we are addicted to comfort. And he's called me into really difficult positions. That's what he's told me to walk into. People like you, people like me. This is where we all find grace. Come on now. Entrepreneurship can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. This podcast and the whole ministry seeks to equip you, the faith-driven entrepreneur, to seize the unique opportunities that God has placed in front of you and overcome the challenges that life will throw your way. These are the stories of how he takes broken things and makes them new. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you're in a place where you're ready to be provoked in your thoughts, maybe even blown away, because our guest today does that. Certainly did it for Henry William and myself. Daniel Fong is the founder of Million Dollar Baby. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, the movie where Hilly Swank is a, is a boxer. <laughs> no, that's not it. Million Dollar Baby is actually a company that's been designing elegant and sophisticated nursery furniture for over 25 years. That in itself is very cool. He's going to tell us, though, all about the early days of the business and what it's been like to watch his kids grow up into the business. That's also very cool. Watch them get involved and continue to be instrumental in leading the organization into the next phase of development. But Daniel has a philosophy, a philosophy of being versus doing, and how that philosophy shows up in his business life and in his business actions. It's a little bit mind-blowing, but man, is it good stuff. Henry, jump in. Welcome back to Faith Driven Entrepreneur. William, Rusty, my co-host, my great friends, how are you? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm really well, thank you. I'm really well. I'm fantastic. I think Rusty's alive over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rusty's having some visual problems. You know, this is a podcast, so most of our guests can't see how we look in the studio audience. Imagine, if you will, just the most amazing high-tech sound studio ever. And um, that's actually not where we are. But just imagine that. I think that that's helpful. Um, last night was a special blessing. We have, and we, I think we've talked about this before in the program, we've got a group of faith-driven entrepreneurs that get together out here in the Bay Area called Inklings. And Inklings is an homage to C.S. Lewis and Jared Tolkien that got together and called themselves the Inklings at the Eagle and Child. And they were great friends, they shared fellowship together. They were constructive critics of each other's work. And some beautiful things came 
out of their friendship. And I think we all know about that. So we've been doing the Inklings. We did the Inklings in Durham, North Carolina for four or five years. And then that continued in various forms. We've had Inklings groups in Singapore and in Jakarta, but probably the most vibrant group is out here right now in the barrier. Although groups are starting to spread up a whole bunch of other places. I know that there's a vibrant group in Atlanta and other places. And I think that over the course of the coming year, I think we'll probably look to encourage more of that because, you know, we've got this new program for small groups. We've got this small group study that I did with J.D. Greer, and it's eight weeks going through the marks of a faith-driven entrepreneur. And I think we've got 300 faith-driven entrepreneurs that are going through it right now with 23 facilitators, which I think is pretty cool. But we have this, you know, this physical gathering of entrepreneurs that get together in location. And the last thing on the small groups is that what's cool about it is the makeup is you can be in a small group with a faith-driven entrepreneur from the Congo and from Brussels and from Spokane. It's really neat in the way that there's a lot of diversity. Last night, William was the speaker at Inklings. And he shared in a way that was really profound. Uh, it was vulnerable. It was transparent. And he had a theme. And uh, William, just once you touch on the theme, I think at some point in time, we will record, uh, we'll take the recording of last night's presentation. And in some form or fashion, maybe in an edited down version of it, we will uh, share with a broader audience because it's so much of your personal story and there's so much there. But you talked about a theme. I think it's relevant for all of our audience. What was it? Oh, yeah, thanks. So the, the major theme was um, something God's been doing in my life where he's just been pushing me towards the phrase I come up with is, is meaningful risk. And I feel like God's just been just pounding on me to try to figure out how to do that with him. And, you know, three of the biblical points I, I processed through, not to save everyone 35 minutes here, but other than 30 seconds, was to take meaningful risk. I think you need to understand grace and, and understand how much God loves you and how it's never going to leave you. You need to understand humility, how big God is, how much we are a extra in the play and he is the star. And then third, to understand what he puts in front of us to be passionate about and not in the happy sense here. Uh, this is Holy Week when we're recording, but in the sense that what are we willing to suffer for? And as I process through that, I think that if we can take God's grace and, and be humble and find those things that we will suffer for, that those are worth taking meaningful risk for. Indeed. Uh, it was really, really good. And we're going to need to unpack that maybe in a future podcast episode, but at the very least, I think we need to go ahead and take the PowerPoint presentation that you had because you had some great context, you had some great scripture references, and it was just a great framework to ask us about whether we're taking risk. One of the memorable quotes was uh, the way we were able to paraphrase the Bible a little bit and just like, you know, what's the greatest risk? What's the worst thing that can happen? Right. And I think it was, was it from Luke? It's like, well, like the worst thing that can happen is you can get killed. That's it. <laughs> that's it. If that's it, right. why don't that's we take it? From, All yeah. they can do is kill you. All they can do is kill you. And I just, I thought that was really profound. The other day I was reading, I picked back up my utmost for his highest Oswald oh, yeah. Chambers, you know, daily devotional. Yes. Yeah. A few weeks ago, it reminded me of uh, Hebrews 11, eight. He had a little thing about Abraham and Abraham. He went out not knowing where he was going. Amen. Right. I mean, the ultimate risk there, right. You know, a life of faith. He went out not knowing where he was going and just followed what God told him. So I may or may not own the web address going without knowing for a future project. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Going it, without knowing. I was like, I got to get that. I'm going to use that for something one day. Uh, oh, that's you really should. Good. You should. I like Oswald. 
Okay. We have a special guest with us, uh, Daniel Fong. I can't even remember how I ended up connecting in with Daniel. Maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't. But we had a really neat conversation five or six weeks ago. And as I was talking to Daniel about what he does, and we're talking within the context of this ministry we have called Faith Driven Investor. And if you don't know that, we have a separate blog and a podcast, and we have a lot of fun with that. But as I was talking to Daniel about his investing experience, I came to understand, of course, that he has an incredible entrepreneurial story as well. And there's so much overlap with faith-driven investor and faith-driven entrepreneur. And he's really leaned into his role as an active investor, understanding that he has this opportunity of pouring into a next generation of entrepreneurs. And he has a framework through which he goes through it. And as he's going through it, I was really captivated. And I think that there's some things... And I never say this. I mean, it, we always want to keep things fresh around here. I don't think I've ever said this before on a podcast. There's some things that I'm not 100% sure that I agree with with Daniel. Daniel will talk about, for instance, about laying off people. And he's got a very strong view on that that I think is really important. And I continue to chew on that. And whether you agree with his view on laying people off or not, I think it provokes a really deep, hard look at what it looks like to love our neighbor that uh, is beneficial. So I'm looking forward to doing that. And there's so much more. There's generational transfer to talk about. There's investing to talk about. And there's an incredible entrepreneurial story that he has behind Million Dollar Baby. So Daniel, thank you for being with us. It's so good to be here with you all. Thank you for inviting me. So Daniel, we'd like to hear about the background and the story, who you are, where you come from. We do that with every one of our guests. You've got a great story. Why don't you lead us up until the time of Million Dollar Baby. What's your background? Okay. I grew up in a Christian family, uh, going to church every Sunday, and was baptized at the age of 15 before I left Hong Kong for boarding school in Massachusetts. After graduation from college in 1979, I returned to Hong Kong and joined my father's textiles manufacturing business. He was extremely sick with a stomach ulcer, and being the only son, and the oldest in the family, I felt compelled to help my father at that time. His ulcer got cured, and after four years, when Great Britain announced that Hong Kong would be returned to China in 1997, my parents, who both escaped to Hong Kong from communist China in the 50s, advised me to become a U.S. citizen. So I joined Li and Fung, a global training company, started their venture capital business in San Francisco, and built up my confidence in tackling multiple assignments during the six years I worked for them. On June 4th, 1989, the so-called incident in Tiananmen Square was very traumatic for my wife and me and our two very young children. We decided to immigrate to Los Angeles where two of my younger sisters had settled. We arrived in LA on October 1st, 1989, decided to take a three month break before looking for work. Since I have worked in a family business and also one of the largest global companies, I decided to go for a new experience in running my own business. You see, experiencing different experiences under the umbrella of continuous learning is part of my lifelong goal. I actually had it written down in a reflective document in 1990. It says to experience as much experience possible. Therefore, it is not a typical reason for the most entrepreneurs to start their businesses. My reason has nothing to do with ego, making a lot of money or being in control. It was simply a new experience that I was pursuing. 
It is definitely not about changing the world and making an impact. I was not traumatized by my experience working for my father nor for the big global company. Therefore, there's no mission to correct any wrong, so to speak. In the beginning, I was going to open several businesses that will support my hobbies, like raising colorful tropical fish and a beautiful flower and plant shop. In terms of how my faith influenced my life and my decision to start my own business, I don't think it was a big part of my being than 30 years ago. The final sentence in my 1990 reflection document said, to live a balanced, multifaceted life of continuous improvement under the guidance of God. In that sense, I am no different from most people, including Christians that I know. It is all about me. The world is centered around me. And the focus is how to be successful usually means making a lot of money. And under the guidance of God is how we add or sugarcoats our basically secular life with Christianity. So from the age of 21 to 41, including the first 10 years in running Million Dollar Baby, I am a typical hard-charging business executive and very successful one. So that's my doing phase. And I was an excellent doer. From 2000 onward, I embarked on a different journey in experiencing, practicing, and perfecting a doctrine of being before doing. Okay, so that's there's so much to unpack there, and I want to do that. Before we do the being part, and this is one of those moments, I think, in our podcast that's an important to pause. This concept that we're going to get back to here in a second of focusing on being rather than doing is really, really, really important. And I think that we, as faith-driven entrepreneurs, miss it more often than we should. I think all Christ followers do, but I think that faith-driven entrepreneurs are focused on doing. And we need to be, we need to receive first. So a lot more there, but let's go ahead. Before we get to the being part, let's unpack a little bit more of the doing part because you had a consumer brand. A good number of people are gonna be familiar with it and Mm -hmm. wanna hear some of the lessons that you learned as you started Million Dollar Baby, as you expanded it, as you brought family members into it. Help us understand how that started and how it grew during your doing phase. As I discussed with you before, I would call it under, I put under divine appointments, how I started noticing this company called Million Dollar Baby, which is a very small wholesale company in Los Angeles at the time that I bought. And the divine appointment was because I bought another similar company the second year round, who was located in Dallas, Texas. So in two years, you know, basically then I have two branches and then subsequently then we expand to Atlanta and then New York. So Million Dollar Baby, that is different from everybody else, the doing part of it, it's a true multi-brand company. We do not simply create brands simply for channel management, that is naming identical or similar products under different brands. We have seven major brands now and many smaller sub-brands. It is a very complicated and sophisticated strategy that requires us to know and segment our customer truly well. Each brand identifies the type of houses or homes that our products would go into. We know the cars that they drive and the lifestyle of our target customers for each of our brands. No other companies in our space have been able even to come close to what we have achieved in our industry for the past 30 years. Million Dollar Baby is the first call of all the top retailers because we have been awesome partners to them. 
So the goals of our awesome sales team led by my daughter, Tracy, is not a particular sales number. To be the first call is the goal. Sales to us at Million Dollar Baby is the result when we serve our customers well. Different from all companies that I know, Million Dollar Baby does not have any long-term goals. At least we have annual projections, not sales goals that are more about supply chain management. To be the most loved brand is our long-term goal and no more boring nurseries is our mission. Million Dollar Baby focuses on excellent execution on a quarterly basis. We spent one week every quarter when the entire company slows down, reviews what happened during the last quarter and formulate new plans for the next quarter. I do not know of any other company in this world that would dedicate one week every quarter for this very unique practice. Mm -hmm. However, I can see how the alarm bells are ringing with our listeners because short-term quarterly results are why many public companies are not doing well, are in trouble. It is therefore why I need to unpack our quarterly performance review week practice more clearly. First of all, my intention is to stimulate, not to advocate any duplication because no two persons are the same and no two companies are the same. What works at Million Dollar Baby will probably not work at your company if you simply copy what we do. It is not the doing that matters, but the being. The short-term quality focus is based on my subscription to Matthew 6, 25, 34, which is the do not worry section in the Sermon of the Mount. Verse 34 said, therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. For a million dollar baby, our goal is not about maximizing profit. That is not our reason for being. I personally, therefore the company, submits to the following doctrine. We express our love of God with our might, soul, mind, and strength by being excellent in everything that we do and with every encounter. Yet, our claim of excellence need to be confirmed and validated by all our neighbors, which includes all our employees, our customers, and our suppliers. In that sense, our excellence is a reflection of how we love all our neighbors. It is what I call the rootedness of our being or the reason why we are in business. Profits or sales are just results. They are not our goals. Another significant difference between Million Dollar Baby is our attitude towards our employees. We do not have a human resource department. We do not treat our employees as resources that we acquire and discard. I coined the term talent management 30 years ago, and I'm happy to notice that this term is becoming popular. Instead of paying lip service by claiming that our employees are like family and the most important asset of Million Dollar Baby, at this time, we have a $10 million emergency fund that will allow us not to lay off a single employee for one year, even if our sales drop to zero. I do not believe it is morally, ethically, or biblically justifiable to use layoffs as a legitimate business tool if we claim that our employees are truly our family members. So that's fascinating. And that's what I alluded to at the beginning of the program. And I've been spending some amount of time thinking about that. And there's so much, gosh, there's so much in there. First off, we've had three babies in our house and none of them have been boring. 
But I do think that I end up spending a million dollars per each baby with all the gear that they get. So much of that I can identify with. But more seriously, this concept of never laying somebody off is fascinating to me. You couched it in this context of loving our neighbor, right? You're very deliberate about that. And you talked about the suppliers and the customers and your employees, the people you come across, and you're compelled to love your neighbor. And your sense is that if you haven't planned appropriately and because of an economic downturn, you have to lay somebody off, you haven't loved them. You haven't loved them by having planning ahead. Now that's peculiar because it stands a little bit in opposition to your idea of not ever planning, right? So those yeah. are two very interesting things. They're kind of intention. One is always plan to make sure you have enough money to be able to make sure you don't lay somebody off. And yet on the other hand, don't overly plan. Right. You don't have a five-year plan. And bandwidth, by the way, I always wanted a five-year plan. David said, that's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's Stalinist is actually the word he used. Right. And so we never had a five-year plan. So we had a four and a half year plan. No, we just we ended up not having great plans either. But talk about that tension between planning. And I think that there's a distinction here that you're planning financially to have enough financial resources, but not overly programming what the activities are that you take. So just unpack that a little bit. And then I think that William and Rusty will pick up on this very novel concept of never laying anybody off. Yeah, I think, Henry, you can see that I have been reframing the discussion of no laying off because I know that I've been practicing talking to a lot of people recently about this and then a lot of people are having a lot of pushback. So I would say that the first is not a planning. That's not part of the doing when I decided not to lay everybody. I think that's part of the definition of my being. So it should be part of the whole reason of actually running a business or what is the theology behind the business. The challenge to everyone that I've talked to is that everyone, including Christian business people, would say that the purpose of a company is to maximize profit, right? So it seems like no one would ever even debate that. And that's where I'm coming from, is that the rootedness of a business is really not about making a profit. Profit is the result, like I said. So to me, the rootedness of the business is how I can express my love for God by glorifying with excellence and then loving my neighbor. The greatest law that Jesus Christ commands us to do should be, to me, the rootedness of my being and the reason why the company exists. And so with that as the rootedness, then what do you do you know, with your employees? So, so to me, you can say it's planning, but part of it is that if you treat an employee just like a family member or whatever, then you have a different starting point. I understand the difficulty when I challenge people about the no layoff policy, because if you don't think about that, and then when the economy drops and disaster hit or something, yeah, then what are you gonna do? Then the Christian way is that you try to be as loving as possible to try to deal with. And then usually laying off is inevitable because you never really sort of position the being of the company in terms of thinking that way. And that's why you're not prepared for that. So that to me is that I'm refraining is that we need to go back a little bit. You know, you can't just now suddenly have no layoff policy when you're not prepared for it. So for me, having the emergency fund is part of my being statement rather than my doing statement. It's the being of the business. To further illustrate that is that it's really, there's two aspects. Because last year, COVID hits, 
And I have to just say, without naming names, right? Major Christian companies, you now people that are, you know, running billion-dollar business or they're billionaire or something that they're featured on these podcasts, they all basically lay off thousands of people as part of their, I think, expression that you know this is inevitable and they have to. They, actually, I usually ask those questions, but the key element for me to that is that in at least two cases. They said 2019 was the best year ever in their company's history. And then 2020 hits and then you, you know they have to lay off people. So this, what I want to introduce that, that it is possible if you change your frame of mind from an annual sales type of uh, or annual profit PL statement, right? This is something that I actually discussed to a lot of my wealthy friends, right? When they start laying off people, I said, hey, you have made a lot of money with this group of employees for the past 10 years, 20 years, right? So if you look at that as one PL, right, of all the years of profit that you have made, then this one year you hit and then you know, it affects your current year PL and you start laying off people. So whatever it is that means you pocketed for the past 20 or 19 years, it's yours. Uh, so now current year, then, I mean, I'm just saying the frame of mind is that if you think about that all the profits that you've made for the past 20 years, it's very difficult, I think, for anyone to justify laying off. That's just a frame of mind. Along the same line, which is also that I got very upset by reading Howard Schultz's book on Onward when he came back and sort of turned around Starbucks and then Tony Shea of Zappos when he moved from San Francisco to Las Vegas. They both laid off thousands of people and they actually wrote about how they were crying people. Or that. I mean, to me, that doesn't really make sense because both of them are billionaires, right? So let me just put it in the framework, right? I think in both cases, it's like 3,000 or 4,000 people. So for 3,000 people, assuming $50,000 a year salary, right? 3,000, 50,000, that's $150 million, right? It's a lot of money. But if you're a billionaire, if you give $150 million, you still have $850 million. This is where I'm saying that that's not really a planning statement. It's a being statement. It's that whatever, you know money I derived from the business in the past, that's me, right? Now I have to lay off people because that's, sorry, because that's how businesses run. That doesn't really sound very logical and sensible and very Christ-like to me. That's just really where I'm going. This is not something new because I have always felt very sad every time I read these newspaper news about that since the 80s, you know, when I first, after graduation, you know, laying off people is a major corporate move and every time there's an economic downturn laying off people so that's why I felt bad and that's so in order for me to be truthful and thought authentic to my feeling of doing that I would why would I duplicate that if that is the case if I'm upset about that type of practice so that's why it started um, I would say uh, 20 years ago that I really seriously put this into practice by creating an emergency fund yeah, I, I think it's fascinating, Daniel. You know, if I reflect back, uh, and, and I think you appropriately have defined the time frame in the in the late '80s, because it was really the stock market crash in 1987 that changed some significant thinking about how companies thought about things. Because prior to that, like I was part of and the PepsiCo companies and Frito Lay, Frito Lay never, Herman Lay would not allow people to be laid off. Right. And in 1991, we went through the first significant layoff in the company's history. And it changed, I think, forever the tone and tenor 
of the relationship of the employee and the company. And not unlike Watson and how he ran IBM, right? IBM was a lifetime employment company. People forget that. When you joined IBM, when we were coming up, you know, you were guaranteed lifetime employment. And then they, they moved away from that. It changed the relationship. So I think it's fascinating because in some ways you're bringing back the past to the future and running counter to really this idea that profit is everything. Now, that being said, you know, let's also remember, I think that when you take other people's money, Right. So if you're an entrepreneur and you've taken other people's money, whether that's venture capital, who has an expectation from their limited partners for a return, or you go public and now you're a public company, you know, it's much harder for these, you know, as you talk about Tony and, you know, Howard Schultz and for them to step in and say, oh, well, I'm I'll personally save this, you know, because they have expectations to, from shareholders. But what I am fascinated with is this idea of the emergency fee, right? This emergency fund, because whether you're a big company or a small company, you know, you could begin to think from day one about a cushion, the rainy day fund to say, rather than immediately go to my labor line as my savings, I will draw on that fund first. And I see that as a very positive long-term investment in the company right? You know, to have that. And in some ways it really, you know, I'm sure when you talk to your employees and, or they hear that you have that when you're recruiting somebody, their first feeling has to be something like, you know, people must've felt from Watson when they talked about lifetime employment. It's like, Hey, you care that much. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So I applaud you for it. I think it's really probably hard for some of our listeners right now who are under the impression are under the influence of other people's money and a board that would look at them and go, are you crazy? But it's really thought provoking. I really appreciate it. I, I agree. The only thing, William here, I, I would comment is, you know, I had this conversation recently because uh, a lot of my friends worked at Airbnb right before they went public. And I don't know if everybody tracked this, but, you know, as you might imagine in COVID, at least in the very beginning stages, the business took a big hit, right? And they eventually laid off, I think it was 25% of the workforce. And then about three months later, they went public. And the stock tripled and, you know, Brian Chesky's worth $15 billion now. And the tension there, they're right. Like, I think the public markets were actually happy that they shed expenses, right? So I, I think he actually got in some way rewarded for that. And I, I just think it's a tough tension. I think it's profound thought because we had lots of conferences. Like, how is this guy that made $15 billion couldn't have kept some people on staff? Because Airbnb is now, of course, recovered, right? And the company's doing incredibly well. And of course, people are going to start traveling again. Like, how was there not a six-month cushion there? And, and I think he gave people six-month severance. You know, it wasn't just a horrific thing, but they did lose their jobs and they have to find a new one in the midst of a pandemic and they work at a travel company, right? So I just think it's a profound thought. And, and you know, I, I just thank you for sort of going out and, and taking a risk. You know, I think we've talked, Rusty and Henry and I, a little bit about, you know, finding what Jesus would have for us in our business, you know? And I think you said it so well, Daniel, one size fits one. Like, what is Jesus calling you to do that is different right. than what the world tells you to do? I hope people think about that. I hope people think like, what could that be? Maybe it's this, maybe it's an emergency fund for layoffs. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's how to love them through having children or, or whatever it may be. So 
comment on the emergency fund is actually we never really have to draw it down or have to use that because we never really actually have to face that situation. But the funny thing is that we did actually have to draw and use the emergency fund about five years ago, you know, when my son transitioned to CEO and I think she made some mistake in actually uh, doubling our inventory basically overnight by some glitch in the programming and the strategy. And that was helpful to have an emergency fund mm. in terms of that, that size, Amen. right? It was pretty traumatic for us for about a couple of years, but then, um, so it is, that's why I want to say that sometimes, you know, when you do things with a different motivation, which is talk about the being, God will bless, you know, us because it was not really for a certain intention, but it can be very useful in other things. It is also very powerful. Last March, we were one of the, I think, if not the first company to actually shelter from home because my son and my, it's just very, very protective about our employees. And we, we really treat them as, as family members. So he said, why would I not do that? If I'm very, very you know, concerned about the health issue, I should extend that to all my employees. And the first thing that we said, because we were anticipating at least a 50% drop in sales at least because everything was shutting down and all that. So again, that was the time where we thought that we would have to. So the first thing that we announced when we sheltered from home is that there will be no layoffs. It's just tell everybody just to be calm down and not to worry about that. And I'm just saying that you cannot believe how powerful that statement. Of course, and we've been repeating that throughout our quarterly meetings and stuff that I've been talking about. But to actually... <laughs> Right when the situation arises to say something like that, it's really, really powerful to our company and to the morale of the whole whole company. That's amazing. And and you know, as I mentioned earlier, just like I feel that meaningful risk that Jesus put on your heart and you took it. Right. And here he is walking with you through it. So I want to switch to this. You just mentioned your children a little bit. Right. Um, could you tell us about running a generational business? and how that's worked out and where you are now and just kind of walk us through the generational transfer of the business and, and how your children got involved. Yeah, that actually is a really a tremendous blessing, right? I mean, because you hear so many negative stories about family, business, I know family working together, never worked out. And actually I'm from Hong Kong, right? Almost all the major families in Hong Kong are suing each other. They're having problems. So it is obviously very, very, a great blessing if things worked out. So I guess it could be because the same thing, right? When you read a lot of these layoff news and you think about it, it's okay, well, you know, how does that affect my being? So same thing with running a family business is actually that was not intentional in the beginning. I work for my father. And so when my children were very young, I actually said two things to them. I said, just because your father and your mother run their own business, there's actually no pressure for them to come and join the family business. That's, I stated that very early on, and I actually encouraged that they go on and do other things, you know, right? Because I work for a big company, and then eventually I start my own business. I thought that's not bad as experience. I also tell them that um, they cannot, just because their last name is Fong, automatically assume that they have a VP position or, or eventually will take over the company. Because like I said, I have my team that I built up, so that doesn't really work well with me. So the amazing thing was that why I really don't want that to happen, I think that's why I really subscribe to divine appointments. That is God set the schedule and God set the programs in my life. Um, 2004, when my daughter graduated from college, at the same time, my wife, who's just in the, let me see, uh, early 40s, 
got colon cancer. And it was very surprised, you know, it was a sudden thing. And um, we really cannot deal with it. You know, we're, we're a much smaller company than 2004. And so I asked my daughter simply to delay her employment in New York City working for Christie for about three months so that we can reorganize and hire more people to do what mom is doing and things like that. And so she agreed. She said, okay, I'll, I'll just take a, you know, a delay for three months. And she joined the company. It was a temporary thing for me, but what I heard from the team was that the first day she came to work, everybody said it was like a breath, a fresh air that came through the office. The way that she talks, that she carries herself, and that she just how she works was really amazing. And then she loved the business, and she stayed. So she continues with and working the company, and I, I felt very, very blessed and very, very excited to be working with my daughter. And so then I changed gear because my son will be graduating in two years time. And I actually did a proper recruitment exercise, you know, flying him out to the company, spring break, along with two of his classmates, did the, the wine and dine them, you know, explain to them and then try to recruit them. So that was not a typical fathers and son talk. Okay, now it's time to come back to work for the father. Usually work for peanuts, you know, because it's a privilege to work with father and all that stuff. No, I did a proper recruitment because there were two other classmates that we were trying to recruit. The bottom line was that all three of them joined the company. And so I would say that that recommendation is that um, all parents should look at it that instead of a requirement that their kids join the company, that they should really try to think of it as recruiting the best employees possible. Now, regarding the transition part, it's also interesting is that because I actually, besides my two son and daughter, I also have a brother-in-law. I also have a sister that works in the company. So as part of the being statement, right? If we want to glorify God in business as a Christian family, I just have this notion that we should not argue in front of the employees at the business when we're working together. Because it is inevitable, right? Even with family, there are disagreements, there are different issues. So I created a family meeting for all the family members that work in the business outside of the business. And it's chaired by not myself, but I chaired by a good friend of mine who's a great coach. And I would say that it's very, really, really helpful and very transformative in terms of how the family showed up in the business every day because we resolve all the issue separately. And during one of those meetings is when I was thinking just out loud, I said, well, I mean, eventually I would do not want to continue to be the CEO because things are changing faster and everything requires a different type of energy. And I just felt that I want to have that discussion. And basically immediately there was some resolution. My daughter said, let Teddy goes first. You know, so even though she's older, but she's felt that, you know, the brother should go first. And then immediately my brother-in-law, my sister said, Teddy's not ready. And then the next conversation, okay, fine. Then we'll do a three-year co-CEO situation and then, you know, transition to CEO. So I would say that that is a significant piece of sort of a strategy that I've been advising a lot of family business now to sort of try to have that type of a family meeting outside of the business and chaired by someone that's outside of the business and to really work out all the issue outside of the business first and show up as a united front 
at the business. Could you tell our listeners a little bit, how often do you meet? When does that meeting kind of happen? You said you had a coach. I'm going to assume this is someone you, you hired, like you hired a professional right. to right. come in. Just kind of talk through that. I think that's probably something that, that people would be interested in. Yeah, the rhythm is always quarterly. So we run the company on a quarterly basis. We spend one week every quarter. So every uh, quarter, we will have a family meeting before the quarterly meeting. So the rhythm is quarterly, yes. And um, I don't know if you guys know about this organization called Vistage, which is the executive training organization. So I was a member since 1992 as part of my continuous learning and just try to, you know, be a responsible executive. So Richard was my chair then. He later became the president of the organization, but then now he's also back to the chair. And so I have a long relationship with him. So I trust him and he knows the family really well. So that really worked out really good. So does that answer your question? It's a, it's it does. A- it does. No, I appreciate that. And unfortunately, we're coming close to the end, but I have to bring up one thing right. uh, that I've heard you say before that I think may or may not have come up in this meeting, because I have a feeling some other CEOs may have a similar issue. Can you explain the seagull problem that you suffered through uh, while serving as a co-CEO with your son? Okay. The funny thing is that I know that it came up with the Inc. Magazine interview and all that stuff. Of course, I don't claim that I'm the CEO. (laughs) Of course not. Of course not. Things like that. But obviously, I think it was during the co-CEO phase, which can be tricky because co-CEO meaning we are both the CEO. And I would say, why don't I just know the correction of that? If it actually did happen, the correction right now is that I only influence my son right now with a one-on-one every week. I do not do anything outside or behind my son's back and try to go. I think that's the seagull type of a situation whereby I, a lot of the patriarch or owners, you know, even though they transition to second generation, they feel that they're still the owner and they still want to do certain things. And so they can go in and they felt they have the right to now, you know, because I'm still the owner of pharmacy or something. And that is problematic. And right now that means if my son is not in agreement with me, then nothing happens. So my only influence is through my son. And that I think is very, very crucial for all actually older generation needs to realize. The problem from my observation regarding generational transition or even not necessarily general, it's just transition. It's usually it's the older generation or the older regime refusing to let go. I think that is the root problem. And that goes back to rootedness again at the being, right? So if you're willing to let go, then you let go. And you really then focus on helping the second generation to succeed. Like I said in the beginning, I hope that my talk is not an encouragement to copy what I do, but a stimulation thought. That means for the older generation to ask the son and daughter to just copy what they've done, which is what they do. You know, your father and mother have done, you know, we're so successful. So here are the 10 rules you cannot change because these are the doctrines that have, you know, helped the company to become so successful. So you need to continue that for the rest of your life. And that to me is so sad because that is just a straight jacket towards uh, to the second generation. And that is actually, to me, a definite formula for failure when any parents say things like that to their children. Well, I, I think that's profound in anything. Rusty, I might swing it to you as what you've seen in your career. I mean, I think you see entrepreneurs that finally give up product 
and they right. still want to come in and own it oh, or totally. they finally give up. I mean, how have you seen that play out? I mean, just like, I think that's such a profound well, lesson. Like the one-on-one, that's so good. There's a rootedness that to that too. It's right. a rootedness about the legacy. You know, there's this thing going right now that a lot of pastors don't finish well, right? So that what it is, the solution, there's so many books up there is that because they're not focusing on their legacy. I think that is problematic. For me, the only legacy that I care about is Jesus Christ. I don't care about my legacy because I'm like dust. I'm already so privileged and blessed that I can even live like this. You know, the, the whole notion about legacy is problematic. So that's why the only reason one can let go is that you don't care about your legacy and you care about the legacy of Jesus Christ, which is how you glorify him. Then you will see that helping the second generation to succeed gloriously is the right move. And that's, I think I keep going back to rootedness is that we have to understand as Christian, what are we supposed to do? I keep saying that it's not a sugar coating of Christianity. Oh, I do Bible studies. I have small groups and all this. It's really about our whole being needs to be radically transformed. Rusty, sorry. No, no worries. I I just wanted to say that, you know, for some of our listeners who aren't in family-owned businesses, this is the same thing that happens with our boards, right? Our boards can also be seagulls, and we as board members can be seagulls, and we as CEOs or founders can be seagulls, and we as department heads can be seagulls. You know, so I think it's really important that we all take a check in our own spirit, you know, to make sure that we're not seagull managing. Yeah. And a big factor of being a seagull is a timing issue. It's that because everybody has different priorities and different, right? To be a seagull is that I feel this is, needs to be done now. Or this is to happen now. So because I'm eager, so as a seagull, I want to, you know, make it happen. But what I have found out that right now, for example, like my son, it may take a few years, but eventually he will get around to it and then he will execute it. And in a very much more glorious fashion because it's more together because he is actually, you know, digested it and his being that affects his doing. And so the seagull, like you said, the board, whatever, you have the eagerness to see certain things happening, but sometimes be patient, work with the CEO, the person that's really the, <laughs> the chief executor, wait, you know, allow God to come in and, you know, create the divine appointments and these things will happen. And it's just really wonderful how I train myself, be willing to not care about my own legacy and just really watch how things develop with my son. I cannot describe the joy of Mm. that experience. Amen. Amen. And that's a perfect way to head to our close here, Daniel, where we love to ask, I, I would imagine there are many parts of God's word that has shaped you into being able to have that perspective. And I would ask you if you wouldn't mind sharing with us and our audience, uh, where does God have you in his word today? And where is his scripture coming alive to you in this season of your life? Well, I just finished my uh, master in theology degree at Fuller Seminary after five years. So I'm well, really this happy. better be good then. I'm really happy about <laughs> that. So there's two things that I felt very strongly, uh, particularly after my last class on pneumatology, which is the Holy Spirit, which is a subject that is not really being talked about much in the Western Christian world. So right now, I think uh, I started a nonprofit called Uncommon Voices Collective. It is to deal with the polarization that's happening, particularly in the United States, but I think it's happening all over the world. 
I mean, you know, we can have another <laughs> podcast to talk about why this is happening. And part of it is also economics because that's how you news organization with money now. So I felt very strongly, particularly also in the Christian world, uh, the American Christianity, sort of what I've been talking about is counter, you know, theological, you know, based on the American Christianity. So I want to be able to have some voice and just be able to expose other Christians to some different type of thinking that I've been I thought I was just weird for the past 30 years. And since I, I own my business, I can do whatever I want. But I think I have some good resonance uh, with, with talking with a lot of people for the past, uh, I would say, particularly three years. So that's one thing. So we have print media. We have a lot of uh, YouTube contents and, and podcast things already. But eventually it will be a, a magazine, a print, and maybe some books or something, which is my second project that I felt that... Um, the strange theology, I would say, that I have, I actually have start writing down all the different subject matters, like being before doing and no layoff and all that stuff, which is actually not theological and just philosophical. It's actually being applied in a business, in a big business. We didn't have time to talk about Alabaster, which is a startup, but it's doing so well, which is also a different way of investing and different way of doing startup. Um, so, so all of these, I thought that, I felt very strongly that there's a voice that I need to expose that a little bit more in terms of books. So those are my two projects that I'm working on right now. Now, is there something that you are hearing from during your investing from working with your son or just in your daily Bible time that you feel that there's a verse or just something that just in God's word that you just kind of just hang on to that you feel like he's speaking to you specifically about? No, I, I do not worry about tomorrow. It's really, really powerful to me. And I, it's a mm. constant reminder. I think it's, you no, know, that relates exactly to the being and doing. Because if you notice everyone, and most people, including a lot of Christian, particularly Christian, I would say, that is very missionary oriented. They think they want to do a lot of things for God to glorify. I mean, there's a lot of doing as a Christian. And I yeah. think we really need to remember God saying, you know, just work on every day, you know, you know, which I subscribe to. And you talk about, uh, in the beginning, you talk about death. I have a really interesting story about dying that, you know, that it's part of all that theology is that if dying is the worst thing that we can face, and we should, as Christian, that should not be a problem. But if you notice the behavior of most Christians, it's like dying is a big problem and avoidance of dying is actually, you know, it's yeah. a big issue. But you see, that to me is, it's a being issue, right? If you say you're a Christian and you do your, say, you know, all these Bible studies and stuff, so why are you so anxious about doing all these things? And also um, another, I would say two chapters, which is Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and I think most people really need to continuously read that every day, along with <laughs> Matthew 6, uh, 35, is that the description of the new heaven and new earth is not dependent on any one of us doing anything. It's not, it's not depending on us saving another soul, you know, do reading and uh, memorizing another Bible verse. It has nothing to do with us. God has already done it. But the grace and the blessing is that we get to participate it through that invitation of Christ that we can participate. But it's not about us making it happen. 
right? That, yeah. that, that we need to prepare this so that chapter 21, 22 will happen. There's nothing to do with that. So I think all this is, has to do with our doing. It's really, we need to put our doing in the right context. And that's why I focus on my being because when I'm really the verses, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So that's the being. When Christ lives in me, my doing is that then it's really what they call about the work of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is Galatians 5.22, right? So it's not my fruit. You know, Christian, all the Christians said, how can I can bear fruit? No, we don't bear the fruit. We're just the conduit. We're just the branch and the vine, right? So, so all these, if we put all together, would orient our being at a proper pace. And then our doing will be so joyful, so peaceful, so, so loving and all that, because it's not our doing. It's actually the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ that's actually doing that. And, and I'm just saying that I actually can document now through my life, through the businesses, that actually this can happen. And it's really, really joyful and amazing. I really want to share that with everyone, that it is possible. And it's not just theological, that it is possible to live a life full of Sabbath, which is not an event, which is not one day out of the week. It's actually a mindset. It's an attitude that we have peace continuously and be with Christ 24-7. Isn't that, doesn't that sound very good? Yes, it does. Awesome. It does. That's an encouraging note to end on. I wish we didn't have to stop. And maybe this is a harbinger of things to come than talking about and unpacking a lot more of this. It's infrequent that we have an entrepreneur and investor that is, happens to be graduating with their master's in theology. So this is great. You've blessed us. And Daniel, we're grateful for you. Thank you for this opportunity. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve the community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Entrepreneurship is often a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other faith-driven entrepreneurs like yourself. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet for an hour a week with your peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman, intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs, audio and editing by Richard Barley, our theme song is In the House by David Crowder. 